I'm Malini, and I'll be doing the second reading. The second reading is taken from Psalms um, number two, the second Psalm. Starting on verse, verse one. Why do the nations conspire and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth take their stand and the rulers gather together against the Lord and against his anointed one. Let us break their chains, they say, and throw off their fetters. The one enthroned in heaven laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. Then he rebukes them in his anger and terrifies them in his wrath, saying, I have installed my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will proclaim the decree of the Lord. He said to me, you are my son. Today I have become your father. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your inheritance, the ends of the earth your possession. You will rule them with an iron scepter. You will dash them to pieces like pottery. Therefore, you kings, be wise, be warned, you rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry and you be destroyed in your way, for his wrath can flare up in a moment. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. This is the word of the Lord. Uh, thanks, Melody. It'd be great if you could keep your Bible open. Uh, we'll be working through uh, Psalm 2. Uh, so do keep it open with you and we'll uh, follow along. But as we begin, I'm going to um, I'm going to pray. So please pray with me. Gracious God, we know that your way is perfect and that your word is flawless. Indeed, you shield all who take refuge in it. And so, as we consider your word today, may you help it to be a lamp for our feet and a light for our path. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, He will win who knows when to fight and when not to fight. That's a quote from the uh, famous Chinese general, Sun Tzu. I will repeat it for you. He will win who knows when to fight and when not to fight. And what Sun Tzu tells us is the key to conflict is knowing how to pick your battles, is knowing when to fight and when not to fight. But uh, human history is scattered with people who didn't listen to that advice, uh, who fought battles they shouldn't have, and who didn't know how to handle conflict well. Uh, because there have been some wars over the most ridiculous things you can imagine. For example, there was the Pig War. Uh, that was a war that broke out between America and Great Britain in 1859. As the name suggests, it was over a pig. Uh, an American farmer shot a British pig because it was eating his potatoes. Uh, it's uh, what a thing to fight about. A pig being shot because it's eating potatoes. Now, I love bacon, but I don't know whether I'd go to war about it, but that's what they did. Or what about the uh, War of the Stray Dog? That was a war that broke out between Greece and Bulgaria when a uh, Greek soldier got shot crossing the border into Bulgaria because he was chasing his runaway dog. His dog ran away, he chased after it, it went over the border, he got shot, and a war started. Or what about the Pastry War? Uh, this was a war between France and Mexico. A French pastry chef got kicked out of Mexico and the Mexican government refused to pay the money that was owed to him. 
And so the French didn't like this. They wanted the, the Mexican government to pay this French pastry chef. And so they ended up attacking and blockading a Mexican city all over pastries. See, throughout history, there have been countless people who have ignored Sun Tzu's advice. He will win who knows when to fight and when not to fight. History is filled with people who handled conflict badly. But let me ask you this. Have you ever wondered, how does God handle conflict? How does God handle conflict? Does he rush into conflict? Does he fly off his racket? Does he start screaming and yelling and shouting, perhaps like some of the people in those stories? Or does he avoid it? He's a conflict avoider. He never mentions it, never talks about it, never engages with it, just hopes it will go away. How does God handle conflict? And it's a question that we need to know because what Psalm 2 shows us is that actually the world is at war with God. And in particular, kings and rulers are at war with God. Have a look at verses 1 to 3 of Psalm 2. Why do the nations conspire and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth rise up and the rulers band together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us break their chains and throw off their shackles. See, Psalm 2 tells us that there's conflict going on. These kings and these rulers want to rise up and cast God off. That's what they're plotting about. And in fact, that uh, word there for plot is the same Hebrew word that's used in Psalm 1 for meditate. And so remember in Psalm 1, it talks about meditating day and night. It's what consumes our thoughts in Psalm 1. And we see the same idea here about plotting. This plotting to overthrow God is what consumes their minds, their thoughts. It's all they can think about. And certainly here in Australia, we know a lot about casting off uh, leaders. You just need to look at the last 10 to 15 years in Australian politics. Almost every sitting prime minister has been cast off by a backroom deal. Uh, first, Kevin Rudd was ousted by Julia Gillard. Then, uh, ironically, Julia Gillard was ousted by Kevin Rudd. Then, Tony Abbott was ousted by Malcolm Turnbull. Then, Malcolm Turnbull was ousted by Peter Dutton, though it was Scott Morrison who ended up in power. See, all of those people did backroom deals. They plotted and they schemed to overthrow their leader. And in a sense, that's a bit like what's going on in Psalm 2. The leaders and the nations are plotting to overthrow God as their king. They're conspiring to be rid of him. They're in direct conflict with God. But of course, the thing is that this rebellion that's going on against God in Psalm 2 is not something that's limited to only in those times. Because when we look at the world around us today, we see that the kings and the rulers of the world today are still in direct conflict with God. Have you ever noticed that? Take our state, for example. Last year, we had the anti-conversion laws introduced. Laws that make it illegal to preach God's view on sexuality. Laws that make it illegal to even pray with someone who's same-sex attracted about their sexuality. Even if they want that prayer, even if they request that prayer, it is illegal. See, that is an attack on God. It's an attempt to cast God off as king to silence his views on sexuality and gender. Our state government is in direct conflict with God. But as bad as that is, there's actually pushes to go even further. One podcast I like, uh, li- I like listening to is called The Pastor's Heart. 
Uh, it's a really helpful podcast where they interview all sorts of different religious leaders and pastors and ministers about a whole different range of topics. Do check it out, The Pastor's Heart. But recently they had a man on it called Michael Stead. He's the head of Sydney Anglican's body that's engaging with the federal government about the uh, Religious Freedom Bill. And incredibly, one thing he mentioned in that conversation is that there are currently movements underway by various lobbyist groups to make it illegal here in Australia to say that Jesus is the only way to heaven, that that's an offensive thing to say and should be banned. Let me repeat that because it's so staggering. There are currently moves afoot here in Australia to try and block Christians from being able to say that Jesus is the only way to heaven. They want to make it illegal to be able to say that. See, this is an attack on God. It's an attempt to cast God off as king. See, this war against God isn't just a war confined to the past. It is happening today. And so then we come back to our question from the start. Well, if that's the case, then how does God handle conflict? How will he respond to those today who are at war with him? What will he do? Well, in the rest of the psalm, we see four things, four things that God does in the face of conflict. But the first of those is in verse 4. These kings and these rulers have risen up, they've declared war against God. And so, what would you expect God to do? Well, we might expect that the heavenly war room would be hustling and bustling, there'd be planning and strategizing going on as God figures out how he's going to handle this conflict. But did you see what happens? God just laughs. He doesn't even get off his throne. Have a look at verse 4. The one enthroned in heaven laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. I mean, that's how God feels about this conflict. He just laughs. They're so pathetic. I've got a friend who's friends with another man, and this friend that he's friends with uh, has what's called a post-doctoral doctorate. Uh, I don't know if you knew that was a thing, I didn't know it was a thing, but apparently it is. He has a postdoctoral doctorate, which essentially means he's like a, a brain on two legs. And my friend was sitting down with this very smart man, and he asked him about the size of the, the world compared to the universe. And he said, well, if we took a five-cent piece, and that was to represent the earth, and if we were to sit it in the middle of Australia, and Australia was to represent the universe, would that be approximately the size difference between the earth and the universe? And this uh, brain on legs went into calculator mode and goes, no, 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 that, that wouldn't be right. It would be the earth is 10 to the power of 25, 26, 27. 10 to the power of 27. And my friend replied, oh, that's, that's nice, can you put that in English? And he said, this, this smart man replied, it wouldn't be like a five-cent piece Instead, it would be like a grain of sand. The earth compared to the universe is like a grain of sand compared to the size of Australia. That's how big the universe is compared to the earth. And God sits above it all. But on that speck of sand, there's a few kings in the ancient Near East or, or here in Australia, and they're shaking their fists at God. These kings on a speck of sand. And so it's no wonder that God just laughs at them. He says, you're so pathetic. You can't match me. God just laughs. That's the first thing we see about how God handles conflict. And I was trying to think, what would be the equivalent for us? What would it be like for us? 
Would it be like a toddler trying to fight us? And I thought, no, that's, that's still not one side enough. And I think in the end, what I settled on was it would be the equivalent of uh, this garden gnome rising up and wanting to fight against us. You can see he's got his arms crossed in attitude. He looked too friendly, so I had to draw, draw on angry eyebrows. But you can just imagine if this garden gnome rose up and tried to declare war on us, what would we do? Well, we'd just laugh. It's so pathetic. It's a 0% chance of winning. It's a less than 0% chance of winning. And that's what God is like to the kings and rulers who rise up against him. He merely sits back and laughs. They're so pathetic. And so that's the first thing we notice about how God handles conflict. But then we come to the second thing. Because did you notice what happens? The laughter turns to anger. Because even though they're so pathetic, they're not insignificant. And so God rebukes them. He merely speaks at them and it leaves them trembling. Have a look at verse 5. God rebukes them in his anger and terrifies them in his wrath. See, God's angry at their incredible arrogance, at their bloated sense of self-confidence. He's like a parent and he, so he speaks at them, he's like a parent who simply uses the name of their naughty child to invoke fear. I'm sure we can all remember times like that when we were children. Uh, when I was a kid, I used to play all sorts of ball games inside. Probably wasn't a wise idea, but we used to play all sorts of ball games inside. And I remember one time my parents were out and I was playing indoor soccer with my brother. And we used the door as a goal. And I did this, uh, the best shot either of us have ever done. It was steepling towards the top corner. And he managed to get a finger to it and deflect it up, but it still went through. But unfortunately, that deflection that he gave sent it up and into the chandelier in the next room. And all we did was we heard the shatter of glass and we knew our life was over. <laughs> we knew that that was the end. So we tried to fix it, but it was too late. It was gone. And when my parents got home, all they needed to say was my name, and I knew that was the end. And in a sense, that's a little bit like God. All God does here is says a word, and it leaves them trembling, it leaves them fearful, terrifies them. But the question is, if the world is so small, simply a speck of sand, then why is God so angry? Well, it's because even though the world is just a speck of sand, God still has his plans for it. He's got plans to establish his king. And so this is the second thing we learn about how God handles conflict. He continues with his plans. First he laughs, and then he continues with his plans. And that's exactly what he does. Have a look at verse 6. I have installed my king, in my, have installed my king on Zion, my holy mountain. Now, this uh, place, Zion, comes up a lot in the Psalms. It's referring to Jerusalem, uh, that key city of God's people, that key city of King David, that city that holds the temple, that city that God is said to live in. And God continues with his plans to establish his king in this city. See, God's not put off by the conflict. The conflict of these kings doesn't stop him from doing what he wants. He goes about his plans like he always intended to. And so he's installed his king in Zion. But the incredible thing about this king is his identity. Did you notice what it was? Have a look at verse 7. I will proclaim the Lord's decree. He said to me, you are my son. 
today I've become your father. This king is God's son. Not a son by adoption like we get to be, but a son by right. The Messiah, God's chosen king, is God's unique son. And this son has been given everything. Did you see that? Have a look at verse 8. Ask me and I will, this is God speaking, ask me and I will make the nations your inheritance, the ends of the earth your possession. See, absolutely everything we see around us, from the farthest corner of the icy tundras of Antarctica to the highest peaks of the soaring Himalayas, from the hottest stretches of the Australian outback to the luscious parts of the Amazon forest, there's not a corner of the earth that hasn't been given to King Jesus, God's Son. And in a sense, the fact that this King is God's Son makes the conflict, makes the declaration of war even worse. Because if it's bad to insult God, and it is, it's even worse to insult God's Son. Now, I've got a a mate who's pretty well uh, good-natured, and we banter a lot, we joke around, we make fun of each other a lot, and he always receives it really well, takes it really well, unless you insult his kids. That's one thing to insult him, but if you insult his kids, then be prepared to face the consequences. This peaceful, kind, placid guy will fight to the death for his kids. And these kings and rulers here aren't just insulting God, they're insulting God's Son. And so they'll face the consequences. But nevertheless, God's not deterred by this conflict. In the face of governments trying to ban his view on sexuality or trying to outlaw the gospel, in the face of the world's conflict, what does God do? Well, God just continues with his plans to establish his son. And so that's the second thing we see. And then we see in verse 9, the third thing, God destroys his enemies. God laughs, then he continues his plans, then he destroys his enemies. He won't leave them fighting him forever because uh, all the people and the nations, the, the kings and the lords, the governments and the rulers, they've all been given over to King Jesus. And did you see what King Jesus will do? Have a look at verse 9. You will break them with an iron scepter. You will dash them to pieces like pottery. If you don't know what a scepter is, it's like the, the staff, the royal staff that kings and queens hold, and it's a symbol of their royalty, a symbol of their authority. But these rebellious kings are about to discover that the scepter that King Jesus holds isn't just for looks. It's not just a symbolic staff, but an iron scepter that can shatter them into a million pieces. See, the worldly powers and kings, they might think that they're strong and mighty, they might think that they can fight against God, but in reality, that's all that they are, a garden gnome. And do you know what King Jesus will do? He takes his scepter. And he destroys them. That is the reality of what King Jesus will do. See, kings and powers of the world might think that they're strong, but that's all they are. A bit of broken pottery in the face of God's power. 
And see, this is how God handles conflict. He hands the kings over to his, to his son, his king. And he will completely destroy them. He will completely shatter them. See, this is the fate awaiting anyone who fights against God. But the incredible thing here is that it's not just a picture of physical destruction. Certainly it is that, but it's even more than that. It's a picture of spiritual destruction. It's a picture of hell. I heard the story recently of SMBC, which is a Bible college in Sydney. And uh, the principal was talking with one of the biggest financial donors to the, the college. And this financial donor said, I will keep donating to SMBC as long as you continue to affirm one thing. And so the principal was thinking to himself, trying to figure out what is it that he's going to say. Is he going to say the authority of the Bible? Is he going to say the Lordship of Christ? Is he going to say the resurrection? What is it he's going to say? And do you know what the answer was? This donor said he'd continue to donate as long as SMBC continued to affirm that people outside of Jesus are going to hell, that people outside of Jesus are facing that, that this is the reality of people outside of Jesus. See, ultimately, this is what comes for those who are in conflict with God. Those today who have tried to ban God's picture of sexuality, those who are lobbying to ban the truth that only Jesus can save, those who declare war on God will end up like this. That's how God handles conflict. But there's one more thing that God does, because that's not their only option. Before this happens, we see the fourth thing, that God offers mercy. That's the fourth thing that God does in the face of conflict. See, rather than be at war with God and His King, He offers them the chance to bow down. They can humbly worship Him with fear and trembling. Have a look at verses 10 to 12. Therefore, you kings, be wise, be warned, you rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and celebrate His rule with trembling. Kiss His son or He will be angry and your way will lead to your destruction. For His wrath can flare up in a moment. See, if they're wise, then what will they do? Well, they'll bow the knee willingly. They'll serve God and they'll celebrate His rule. They'll kiss the sun, of course, not in a romantic way, but in the way of showing deference, of showing submission. See, if they want to avoid this, then they have an option. They have the option of mercy there. And so they'd be wise to take it. And if they do, then there is great mercy to be found. Because any who take refuge in God will be blessed. Have a look at the end of verse 12. Blessed are all who take refuge in Him. See, King Jesus is a merciful king who delights in loving and protecting people. Now, he doesn't want the kings and the rulers of the earth to end up like this. He wants them to be welcomed into his people, to be protected and blessed by him. And this idea of blessing is similar to what we thought about last week with Psalm 1. It's not a blessing of worldly kind of comfort or prosperity, but rather something much better, something much deeper the life and salvation that Jesus offers through His life, death and resurrection. And because of that, because of Jesus' life, death and resurrection, there's mercy. They can be spared God's judgment. They can be spared ending up like that. 
But apart from Jesus, there's no safety, there's no protection, and there's no blessing. Now, of course, it is worth noting that this psalm is primarily talking about kings and rulers in the world, powers in the world. It's what it's primarily talking about. But of course, it applies to everyone. We know that this is the case for every single one of us. All of us have sinned against God. We're all at war with God in one sense. And so we've got the same fate waiting. But in the, in the same way, we have the same wonderful offer of mercy. That if we kiss the sun and bend the knee, then there's great blessing and protection to be found. And praise God for that. But that is how God handles conflict. He laughs. He continues with his plans. He destroys his enemies. But he first offers them mercy. And what a comfort that is to us to know that that is how God handles conflict. Because as God's people, conflict will arise in the world. Uh, Not the conflict of a husband and wife bickering about who's going to take the bin out or the conflict of kids and their parents fighting about how long they should spend doing homework. But rather the conflict that arises because of our faith in God. Because uh, what often happens is the way that the world will make war on God is by taking it out on us, his people. I heard the story this week of a church in Nigeria. An early morning church service had just finished, much like our service now. It had just finished when some gunmen arrived. And they demanded to know where the senior minister was. And when they found him, do you know what happened? Within seconds, they shot him dead and three other people dead. And then they set fire to the houses in the village. Why did they do that? Well, simply because they hated Christians, simply because they hated God, simply because they're at war with God. See, as God's people, conflict is unavoidable. It might not be as extreme for us as it was for those Christians in Nigeria. We might not face gunmen coming and uh, threatening to shoot us dead. But nevertheless, we still face conflict because the kings and rulers of our world are at war with God. And so, what are we to do when we face it? Well, we're to remember Psalm 2, that ultimately God will deal with it. And so, that means we can leave it to God. We don't need to seek vengeance or justice ourselves. We can leave it in God's hands and trust that God will take care of it. We don't need to be scared, we don't need to be fearful of the kings and the governments and the powers because this is all they are, a bit of broken pottery waiting to be smashed. And so we can know with absolute certainty that God has won. Remember at the start I quoted to you, Sun Tzu, he said, he will win who knows when to fight and when not to fight. But actually when we're talking about God, we can stop it after the first three words, he will win. He will win. See, as sure as it is that the sun will set today, that is how sure it is that God will win, that God has won. See, King Jesus sits on the throne. He has won and he will take care of it. And one day, those gunmen from Nigeria, they will stand before the king and they'll have to give account for those four people that they killed. The victims of that horrendous act can rest secure knowing that that is the case. And in the same way, whatever, whatever uh, conflict we face, whatever persecution kings and powers might inflict upon us, we can rest secure 
knowing that God will deal with it and God will hold them to account. See, though they might seem powerful to us now, this is all the enemies of God are. Broken shards of pottery waiting for their judgment. The powers of the world are at war with God, but there's no need to fear because we sit on the winning side. I'm going to pray, please pray with me. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are king and your rule can't be shaken. We thank you that the efforts of the world are so pathetic that all you need to do is laugh at them. We thank you that you're able to continue on with your plans, uh, undeterred by the efforts of the world, and that ultimately you will bring justice and you will destroy those who fight against you. But we do thank you that in that, uh, that is not all the picture. We thank you that you are a gracious God who is merciful. And so we thank you that you do offer mercy. You offer mercy in the blood of your own son, Jesus, who died for us, who rose again triumphant over death, and who now sits beside you on the throne. And so we thank you for the victory that's found in Jesus. It's in his name we pray. Amen.